Have you ever heard of smart growth or even the 15-minute city? Well, today we're going to be talking about city planning, that world of local government where those kinds of decisions have a big impact on your life. We're also going to be talking about things such as transit and the growth of um, urban planning in a particular way that, in fact, uh, impacts your life greatly. We're also going to talk about housing. And in this world, you've probably heard about the 15-minute city, the whole idea that in an ideal world, we'll be able to walk to our, our, our corner store, work and play all in the same neighborhood, and it will be green and we'll be able to take transit everywhere. But is that a dream or is it an urban nightmare? A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Our next guest is uh, Randall O'Toole. He's the president of the Thoreau Institute, and the Thoreau Institute is a um, articulate voice critiquing these kinds of policies. And Randall is an award-winning economist and analyst and author. So welcome, Randall O'Toole. Thank you. Um, Randall, we're, we're delighted to, to have you here today. Um, it's, it's interesting. Can you help us understand more about what a 15-minute city is and uh, I know I've heard about the, the the phrase smart growth for many years now. What do we really mean by this? Well, let's, let's back up just a bit. Urban planners don't understand how cities work. And so instead of trying to make cities work better, they imagine how they would like cities to work. And then they try to force that fantasy on the public and they're not very good at imagining things so what they do is they look at see and see how cities worked a hundred years ago before everybody had cars before we had uh expressways and freeways before we had internet before everybody was hooked up to electricity before we had all kinds of things that uh, we have today and they look at how cities worked 100 years ago, and then they try to impose that on cities today. And to some degree, uh, it's the, the old uh, phenomenon where uh, everybody wishes that they were in Paris in the 20s. And so they're just trying to recreate uh, Paris yeah. in the 20s uh, in North American cities today. But there's also this uh, environmental mystique that cars are bad and anything we can do to get people out of their cars is good, no matter how much it costs, no matter how uh, 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 much it imposes on people. And since people didn't drive cars as much in the 20s because they didn't have cars, therefore, if we make cities like the 20s, people will stop driving. And uh, I call it the cargo cult mentality. Oh. Uh, as, as you may know, during World War II, uh, the Americans occupied islands in the South Pacific, and they had uh, 
landing fields and air traffic control towers and things like that. And their waste, the stuff that they threw out, uh, turned out to be things that were very valuable to the natives because they had never seen anything like those things before, like bags or uh, boxes or whatever. And so uh, when the Americans left, the residents of those communities thought, well, if we build fake control towers and if we build airplanes out of straw to sit on the runways, that we'll get back all the things that we got when the Americans were here. And that's called cargo cult. And that's what uh, urban planners are doing. They're trying to recreate cities of the 1920s, thinking that that will make people change their transportation habits and they'll take transit and ride bicycles and walk more like they did in the 1920s. Wow. So, so you've really um, opened my eyes up a little bit that the whole notion is that we have these planners. These are people in local government or all levels of government who are introducing a lot of policies. I mean, you've touched on everything, how we drive, um, how we live. Um, so a lot of this kind of makes sense. There's a lot of policies that kind of make up would you say smart growth? Is that kind of the, the general header for all these kinds of policies that are really impacting our lives? Yes, smart growth, the 15-minute city, complete streets, uh, new urbanism. All of these are terms that uh, are part of this urban planning philosophy. And the you know they call themselves smart growthers in public, but among themselves, they talk about new urbanists. Uh, but they, use, they like to use the term smart growth. It was specifically uh, developed so that they could blame anybody who didn't agree with their policies as being in favor of dumb growth. Okay. <laughs> so so the, the, work, the use of these words is really important, aren't they? Yes, they are. That's the one thing they're good at is coming up with great words. If you, if you look up smart in the dictionary, the original definition of smart was a sharp, stinging pain. And that's the definition I think they're using. They want to impose sharp pains on people to force them to stop driving, to get them out of single family homes and into apartments and uh, to get them to walk and only travel uh, within as far as they can go within 50, a 15 minute walk. Okay, so I'm as a layperson. I mean, you're you're an expert that has studied this for years and I've, I've seen this certainly over the years in my own experience as a, as a former elect, elected local official. But we often heard phrases such as grow up, as in vertically, and not out, like as an urban sprawl is bad, and stack them and pack them. That was a kind of a, um, a, cr a crude way of describing it. That's all reflective of this way of thinking this, almost like it's an ideology, isn't it? But, well, you can understand it because British Columbia is such a small place that there's a serious uh, risk that Vancouver is going to spread out and cover the entire province. Uh, of course, I'm being sarcastic. British Columbia is gigantic. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and, and Vancouver has absolutely no risk of covering the entire province. Uh, you know, it'll be thousands and thousands of years before we even have to think about that. Our population isn't even growing that fast anymore. The world population, much less Canada's population. And so there's no chance that urban sprawl is going to 
cover up all the forests and farmlands and other lands in British Columbia. And yet they're running scared. And so they say we have to grow up, not out. Well, here's the problem. Growing up is really, really expensive. And growing out, low density development is the cheapest kind of development there is. It's cheap in terms of urban services, but it's cheap in terms of the initial construction cost. A two-story building costs a lot less to build than a five-story or a 10-story building. And it's cheap in terms of operating costs. Mm -hmm. Guess what? It costs less to provide heat for a two-story house than it does to, per square foot to provide heat for a, uh, an apartment in a five or 10-story building. No kidding. Well, the kind of apartments that we see in so many larger urban centers are um, easily 20 stories, 30 stories tall. And I guess what I'm fascinating about, Randall, is that in this kind of environment, though, are you are you saying that suburbs are good? I, I, I think of um, uh, the famous Joni Mitchell song. Uh, they're going to, you know, pave it over and make parking lots and and all these all this kind of urban sprawl isn't isn't that bad randall like surely you're not an advocate for urban sprawl i'm an advocate for letting people live the way they want to live and uh surveys show that 80 percent of americans and i'm sure the same is true for canadians want to live in a single family home and they don't just want to live in a single family home they want to live in a neighborhood of single family homes because such neighborhoods are quieter, there tends to be less crime, there's less traffic, less congestion. It's a much more pleasant place to be to raise your family or to have pets or, or just to relax. And the urban planners think that most urbanites should live in multifamily housing. And so they've done things like they've drawn an urban growth boundary around Vancouver and Seattle and Portland and Toronto and other cities across the country, and then said you can't build outside of that. And if you want your population to increase, you're gonna to have to tear down single family homes and build multifamily apartments. Well, guess what? People don't want to live in multifamily apartments. Maybe 20% do, but the mm -hmm. 80% don't. Okay, but Randall, if, if I take the opposing side a little bit, in Canada, are we not short, or let alone in the world, don't we want to preserve that agricultural farmland so that we can grow our food and, and have a future? I mean, surely um, you're not for just using up valuable agricultural land, are you? Uh, agricultural land is about the most abundant resource we have in North America. We have huge amounts of agricultural land. We only use a tiny fraction of it, about a third, for actually growing crops. The rest of it, it lies fallow or it's used to uh, graze cattle or sheep or something like that. But uh, uh, it's uh, an extremely abundant resource. Forests are extremely abundant. We have more forests today than we did 100 years ago. Uh, and so there is no danger that urban sprawl is ever going to cover all the agricultural or forest lands or even drive up farm or forest prices because urban sprawl has used up some of those farm or forest lands. So we're seeing planners deliberately making housing expensive in order to save something that is extremely abundant. Okay, so would you, So you're saying that the, the planners, the people that are making 
these important decisions that are really framing up the kind of life that we live are doing this deliberately. Why would you say that they're doing it deliberately? Like in Canada right now, in many cities, not all, there's a, a real concern across our country around housing affordability. It's almost like Canada, in fact, the phrase has been thrown around that Canada is broken in so many respects. Um, the issue of housing affordability is of, of really great concern. Like you have communities um, like in Toronto where the, 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 the average housing price is, is some um, nine times um, the average family's income. This is just totally out of the reach of, of the next generation. So um, you say that they're doing this deliberately. What do you mean by that? Planners believe that people should live in density, high density. And it's really odd how they came about this belief. Back in the 1930s, there was a, uh, a modern architect who called himself Le Corbusier, and he came up with a rather loony idea that uh, everybody in a city should live in a high-rise apartment. Nobody should be allowed to live in low-rise or uh, mid-rise, uh, either single-family homes or apartments. They should all live in high-rise apartments. And for some reason, after World War II, we saw governments all over the world building cities or building high-rises in the cities and tearing down low-rise and mid-rise developments to build more high-rises. And it all proved to be uh, a big uh, problem. A lot of the people didn't want to live in them. A lot of them proved unlivable. Uh, many of them were demolished and, and after just a few years because nobody wanted to live in them, but we saw them built. And if you go to uh, Korea, if you go to China, if you go to Russia, if you go to East Germany, you can find these high-rise cities that uh, as soon as people got the freedom to do so, uh, as they did after the Soviet Union fell, they moved out and they moved into single-family homes. Well, in 1960, uh, the city of New York wanted to tear down Greenwich Village, which is a 1890s era uh, uh, dense development of, of basically five-story apartment buildings. They wanted to tear down Greenwich Village and build high-rises. And there was a resident there named Jane Jacobs, and she wanted to defend Greenwich Village. And under the law in the United States, you can only tear down a, uh, buildings and build something else if uh, the government can do so, only if they declare the buildings that exist there to be blighted. So she wanted to prove that her neighborhood wasn't blighted. So she wrote a whole book praising her 1890s style neighborhood, which frankly, was going out of style. People were moving out of those apartments as fast as they could. They'd buy a car, they'd, they'd buy a home in the suburbs in upstate New York or in Long Island or in New Jersey, and then commute to work by car. And, uh, and yet she was living there and she was guilty of what's called survivor bias. She thought, well, since she's living there and she's happy, it must be a wonderful way to live. So she wrote this whole book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities and urban planners read her book and she said, you know, and they said, you know, we're, we were wrong in trying to force everybody into living in high rises. Jane Jacobs is right. We should try to force everybody to live in mid-rise developments. And so now they have, they call it the new urbanism and they actually written on their website 
that all new development should be mid-rise and all existing suburban development should be redeveloped to be mid-rise, to fit their standard of how they think people ought to live. And it's all based on Jane Jacobs, who, uh, you know, she was right to defend her community from the high-risers, but she was wrong, and the urban planners are wrong, in thinking that that is the ideal way of living. It might have been good for her, but here's the kicker. What did she do with the profits she made and the royalties she made from death and life of American cities, of great cities? She moved out of Greenwich Village and bought a single family home. Well, and, and I believe, Randall, she moved to Toronto where that type of policy and philosophy became very popular in Canada, right across the country in some measure, didn't it? It did, but she lived in a single family home in Toronto. And so... All these planners are saying, yes, we should force everybody to live the way Jane Jacobs used to live, but not the way she's living now. Okay, so it's fascinating. So there's, I, I don't want to simp oversimplify this, but there's almost like a fad, a school of thought, a way of thinking that has operated for years across a very important profession of people who are planners, who who make these decisions around where de development should go and and what our city should look like. Um, so in some ways you're saying that we've gone overboard, is that right? No, I'm saying urban planners don't understand how cities work and so they try to impose their fantasies on other people. They've gone overboard. And the problem is that if you're an elected official, if you're a city councilor or a mayor, um, you might have people from neighborhoods come in and talk to you once a month or so and you have the urban planners talking to you every day and just hammering on you that their policies are the right ones. They, and they use terms like sustainable and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and saving farmlands and all these other terms that really, when you look at them closely, turn out to be nonsense. But since they're there every day, those are the people that mayors and city councils and, and uh, provincial legislators all listen to. Okay, so I, th I think what you're outlining here is, is frankly, for a lot of Canadians, it would be a shock for them to hear this, that we have a whole, frankly, a, a team of people working hard to really limit your choices about how you're going to live. And it's really increased um, the cost of living on, on every front from, from housing and so forth. So when you think of the cost of housing then, what is really driving the cost of housing? Um, and, and what are the solutions? Well, the, the, the main thing that's driving the cost of housing is urban growth boundaries. Vancouver has one, Winnipeg doesn't. Housing is affordable in Winnipeg, it's not affordable in Vancouver. When you draw an urban growth boundary, what happens is if you're, mm -hmm. if you're an economist, you understand a word called elasticity. What elasticity says is if demand rises, will, will the producers be able to respond by increasing the supply? If they are, then, it's, then a good is called elastic. And in places like Winnipeg and Houston mm -hmm. that don't have urban growth boundaries, the supply of housing is elastic because if demand increases, builders can build more. They can build more really fast because they don't have to go through long permit periods. They don't have to go find land because there's lots of land available. 
they can do it. And if you're in Vancouver or in Seattle, where you've got an urban growth boundary and virtually all the land in the boundary has already been developed, there's no new land that developers can build on. Getting permits to tear something down and build something else is really time consuming and uh, it's really expensive. They've got all kinds of fees. And so, uh, so supply is not elastic. When the supply isn't elastic, a small increase in demand can lead to a large increase in price. And a small decrease in demand can lead to a large decrease in price. So housing prices become a lot more volatile. It used to be you could buy a house and it would be a nice way of not only living, but storing your money because the house would appreciate uh, over time uh, at a slow rate, not at a fast rate, but when you wanted to, you could borrow against it to put your kids through college. You could borrow against it to buy, uh, make home improvements or buy a boat or buy a bigger car or something like that. Uh, and you could uh, have it, if, when you retire, you can sell it and move into a smaller quarters and, and live off the, the difference. But when you make housing supply inelastic, when you put an urban growth boundary around a city, then housing prices become really volatile. They swing up and down, and you don't know when you're going to need to buy or sell a house. You probably will end up buying the house when everybody else wants to buy and prices are high. And then when you want to sell, everybody else wants to sell and prices are real low and you lose a lot of money. So it no longer becomes uh, a good investment to buy a home like it was before urban planners got their hands on, on cities. So, Randall, what you've outlined makes a lot of sense is that the urban planners, to a large degree, have, have created this scarcity of land for housing people, and that's created unaffordable housing. And so the solution then is to open it up. Is that what you're saying? And and just develop all those parklands and forests and, and all that agricultural land? Or what, what should we do? The solution is to get rid of the urban growth boundary and let developers develop where it makes the most sense for them. And if they go to a farmer and say, look, I'll pay you this amount of money to give me your farm and let me develop it. And the farmer says, no, I can make more money growing crops, then it'll stay as a farmland. But if the farmer says, well, I'll take your money and buy another mm -hmm. farm that's miles away from the city and grow crops there, uh, and there's lots of agricultural land that they can do that for, uh, then the land gets converted into housing. And as I say, we have way more farmland in North America than we actually use for growing crops. So we're not going to run out of farms. Exactly. So in this context, though, um, Randall, um, this has massive implications for people's daily lives. I think of not just the, the price of housing, but also I would say, or would you say, on our culture, um, the way we, we think about our future. I, I bumped into a young couple yesterday, um, and they're in the, um, the Vancouver area, and they're actually moving to Manitoba because they don't see themselves as having a future. They just can't begin to afford a home. And so they're, they're thinking strategically, like, I've got to move out of this community and move somewhere else where I can afford it. So that impacts people's lives in a big way in terms of how they 
are willing to to develop their families and and contribute to the community because these things have a big impact on their lives. Yes, and it gets into everything. I mean, you look at cities 100 years ago and you say, well, where are the supermarkets? Well, there weren't any. There were little teeny grocery stores that had about a thousand different products on their shelves, whereas today the average supermarket has 30 to 40,000 different products on their shelves. You have a lot of choice. You can go in and whether you want to be a vegan or vegetarian or carnitarian or pescatarian or uh, you, know, you want gluten-free or whatever, you can find it in a supermarket. But if you want to live in a 15-minute city where you can only go to a grocery store that's in, within 15 minutes of where you live, well, that grocery store isn't going to serve very many people because even in the densest city, there aren't enough people to uh, fund a supermarket within 15 minutes of that supermarket. So the grocery store is going to have maybe two or 3,000 mm-hmm. products on its shelves. Uh, there's going to be a narrow range of selection and prices are going to be high because that supermarket's not, or that grocery store is not going to have a lot of competition. There certainly isn't room for two grocery stores within 15 minutes of walking of your home. However, within driving, with, uh, within 15 minutes of driving, you can probably find three or four major supermarkets and those major supermarkets are going to have a huge selection and they're going to be fiercely competi- competing against one another on price and selection and providing you with the freshest, best foods available. And I'd much rather live in a world where I have people competing for my business than where uh, people know that I'm stuck with them because I can't get anywhere else. Okay. So this has uh, big implications on people's lives, how our cities are designed by urban planning, and it needs to change. It's interesting. One of the the observations I have, and, and it seems like it's all interrelated. It's almost, Randall, you've opened our eyes up today about how these decisions have huge impacts, like a like a domino effect on our lives. And one of them I think of is, is the whole area of automobile congestion. Um, there's some large cities uh, in Canada where you frankly, like it, let, let's say we go to Toronto, uh, where they have this massive green belt all around the city. So it's increased the price of housing. But meanwhile, you can barely travel in a vehicle um, anytime between the hours of 6 a.m. till 9 or 10 in the morning. And then on the other end of the day, you can, you can barely travel between three to seven o'clock. So I think of the impacts that has on people's lives. So people can't almost go to work. They spend a lot of time in their vehicle. Um, they can't volunteer in their community because they're, they're so busy commuting, but also they have less time with their families and life is just not affordable. They're getting taxed at the pump. Um, we're half the cost of, of gasoline all in the name of net zero and climate crisis is is almost, dare I say, it's almost like they're on a mission to make life unaffordable and unlivable. Am I being too too bleak in my, my kind of summary there, Randall? I think you're right that a lot of the congestion that we see in our cities today is deliberate. The planners have decided that we should deliberate. drive deliberate. So they've stopped building roads and instead, or expanding the capacity of roads, 
uh, or doing other things that will relieve congestion. And instead, they want to put all of our transportation dollars into urban transit and bike lanes and things like that. So, uh, for example, the most cost-effective thing you can do to relieve congestion, it costs very little and it does an enormous uh, amount to relieve congestion, is traffic signal coordination. With coordinated traffic signals, it's it, make, it can make it possible to drive from one end of a city to another without having to stop for red lights. And uh, cities used to be in, into doing traffic signal coordination, but now they say, well, if we coordinate traffic signals, that'll just encourage people to drive. We used to see signs that say, signals set for 30 miles an hour. So if you drove at a consistent 30 miles an hour, you wouldn't have to stop at red lights. Now I've actually seen signs in cities that say, signals set to require frequent stops. They deliberately uncoordinated the traffic signals oh in order to increase congestion. So here we have something that would be a way of reducing congestion and they deliberately subvert it so that it won't work. That's basically what urban planning is all about. It's about manipulating people to get them to do what the urban planners want to do rather than what the people want to do. Okay, so this is really kind of shifts to the part two of our discussion where we in the first part talked about urban planning or so-called smart growth when in fact it's arguably punishing and, and uh, painful growth. Um, we So then it's related to also transportation where there's um, almost like a war on automobiles and again the choice of transportation you're taking. Um, for instance, I, I noticed there's a lot of introduction of bicycle lanes, and it's almost absurd. In Canada, we, we are a cold weather nation where uh, we have months of the year dominated by, by what's called winter, and we see a whole bunch of these bicycle lanes. And I'm not against bicycles. Bicycles are great. I own many of them. But the, the reality is it seems like they're introducing not just kind of painted lines, but also... Um, almost mini road systems for bicycles. And to tell you the truth, Randall, and this is just my observation, and I, I'm just curious how accurate it is. It almost seems like they're doing a couple things. It's almost like they're squeezing the roadways to be narrow. So they're getting rid of those automobile lanes by introducing um, cement curbs. So they're, they're blocking off the bicycle lanes, even though often you see almost hardly any bicycles on these bicycle lanes. Am I imagining this or is this is this a fair assessment? I mean, you, you look at the facts and evidence across North America, what are you seeing? Well, if you look at the data, um, most bicycle accidents happen at intersections. Bike lanes are designed to protect bicyclists hmm. from being hit from the rear by automobiles. That's a very rare kind of accident because the automobiles are aware of the bicyclists being there. The bicyclists are aware of the automobiles being behind them. So it doesn't happen very often. When you put bike lanes in, you say, oh, we're doing it to increase bike safety. What you're doing is you're giving bicyclists an illusion of safety, but then you're putting more bicycles at the busy intersections and you end up having more bicycle fatalities. And I look at cities that are doing this. You're kidding. They're also doing, for, the same thing is happening for pedestrians. 
Most pedestrian accidents happen between crosswalks when pedestrians are doing what's called jaywalking, crossing the street between the crosswalks. And yet when they say we're doing, to, doing things to improve uh, pedestrian safety, all of their efforts are aimed at making crosswalks safer. So, and, and making, and by, they do so by increasing the amount of time that pedestrians have to cross the streets, but decreasing the amount of time that cars have. So it increases congestion. So what I can't help but think that what they're really after is making it harder to drive, not making it safer to walk and bicycle. If I wanted to make it safer to bicycle, instead of bike lanes, I would install what are called bicycle boulevards, which is where you take a local street, a neighborhood street that's parallel to a busy street, and you optimize it for bicycling. You reduce the number of stop signs uh, and you make the, the intersections of busy streets particularly safe. But at the same time, you do put in a few concrete barriers. So you allow local automobile traffic, but you discourage through automobile traffic. And bicycle boulevards are a way of making mm -hmm. things safer for cyclists and encouraging cycling without reducing capacities for automobiles on the busy streets. They don't want to do that. They want mm -hmm. to reduce those automobile capacities. And so they ignore the idea of bicycle boulevards and insist on putting in bike lanes. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting background and, and gives some perspective because it's amazing. Um, I look at the, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's with good intentions, an awful lot of time and effort and community discussion and cost into building this bicycle infrastructure, which makes some sense, but it's almost like it's squeezing out the, the automobile, but also um, I look at whether they're even evaluating the numbers of ridership of bicycles. Often I see, um, I'm lucky to see a handful of bicycles use these lanes even, even during a full day. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Um, so I'm, I'm becoming increasingly skeptical um, about the kind of energy and costs that we're putting into this kind of initiative. But they're not building for bicyclists. They're building a fantasy world. And the fantasy mm. world is one that has never existed and never will exist, but that's the world they're building. Uh, if, if you look at science fiction stories about the future, they're almost always going to have, it used to be they almost always would have a monorail. Uh, and today, the latest science fiction stories have replaced monorails with maglev. So if you look at Black Panther, a movie about a, a fantasy world in which there was an imaginary element called vibranium that made it possible to have uh, uh, superconducting oh, yeah. materials. And so uh, a, a fantasy country called Wakanda had a lot of vibranium. So they had streetcars that were powered by uh, electricity and they had maglev and they had all kinds of other things. And I actually, there were actually articles in reputable uh, media saying, why can't we have what Wakanda has? Well, well, wait a minute, vibranium is an imaginary element. <laughs> it doesn't exist, except in the minds of some comic book writers. 
and yet they want to have Wakanda in Vancouver. Well, it's just not going to happen, but they would rather live in a fantasy okay. world than live in the real world. Wow. So speaking of fantasy, I do want to talk then more about transit specifically, because I, I think it's fascinating, your insights. But years ago, at the turn of the century, you referenced in history that we had a lot of streetcars. And it's almost like we've gone to buses on the world of transit. And, and now there's a lot of cities in Canada that are, again, uh, turning to what are called LRTs, light um, rapid tra uh, tra rail. So you have almost the, yeah. So we, we have the introduction of, of rail systems again. So what's going on? What is this effective? Is this the solution again to quote urban sprawl and, and why is this happening and does it work? Well, what's happening is that transit agencies, uh, are basically bureaucracies that are trying to maximize their budgets. And you get more prestige if you've got a bigger budget. You don't get more prestige if you carry more riders within the transit business. The transit business gets the prestige from having- Sorry, can you repeat budget. that, Randall? If you're a transit agency, your prestige within the transit industry is based on how much you spend, not on how many people you carry. And so transit ridership ah. can dive and yet you get a lot of accolades if you spend more money so you're you're judged based on your intentions not on your results and so uh transit agencies figured oh, out my. in the 1980s that uh rail transit cost a lot of money and so they wanted to build rail transit because it enhanced their budgets now to go back in history uh, streetcars were invented in about 1888 by a guy named Frank Sprague. He was the first person to develop a working electric streetcar. And then he became the first person to develop a working electric rapid transit system, which we sometimes call elevators or subways. He also became the first person to develop an, a, a high-speed electric elevator. And uh, <clears throat> within 20 years of when he developed streetcars, Every city in the United States and probably every city in Canada of more than 15,000 people had a streetcar. It was mm -hmm. such a vast improvement on previous methods of transportation that people just installed streetcars everywhere. And they were all installed by private industry uh, with private funds expecting to make money from those streetcars. Well, then in 1927, a new invention came along uh, it was called the Omnibus, or the bus for short. And in 1927, a company in Ohio made the first bus that cost less to buy and cost less to operate per seat mile than streetcars. Within 10 years, 500 mm. American U.S. cities converted all their streetcars to buses. And I'm sure the same was going on in Canada. The, street, the buses were such an improvement That's on right. streetcars that they rapidly switched from streetcars to buses. Uh, and uh, by 1974, there were only about six American, six U.S. cities and I think only one Canadian city that still had streetcars. But then uh, mm -hmm. the transit industry got taken over by the government. 
initially the cities that took over transit still mm. expected to operate out of its own revenues. They didn't want to subsidize it. They just thought that government operated transit would uh, be better because we wouldn't have to it wouldn't have to pay profits to stockholders and so they'd be able to provide better services. But then in the 1960s we started seeing the United States federal government subsidizing transit and they particularly wanted to subsidize uh, new ideas and so they came up with uh, well let's throw some money at a city like Atlanta and let them build a whole new transit system and see how that works. So they gave Atlanta a bunch of money and they built a what's called a heavy rail system. Uh, and then they threw a bunch of money at Portland and Portland said, what do we want to build? Well, heavy rail is too expensive for us. Let's build light rail. Well, let me explain what these terms mean. We think heavy mm. weighs a lot, light doesn't weigh as much. So since it's light, it must be more energy efficient and uh, be light on the landscape. Well, that's not what those terms mean at all. Instead, the terms refer to capacity. Light rail cars actually weigh more than heavy rail cars. But if you look at the uh, American Public Transit Association's glossary, and you look up light rail, it says light rail is a uh, form of transit that has a light volume capacity. Heavy rail has a heavy volume capacity. So New York subways can move 40,000 people an hour. Light rail can move 9,000 people an hour. Now, why mm -hmm. is that important? It's because Buses can move 20 or 30,000 people an hour. So we have a high cost transit, light rail cost, you know, 100, 200, 300. Some cities have spent $600 million a mile building light rail. Boston has just got done with one that cost $500 million a mile, all above ground, incidentally. So we spent hundreds of millions of dollars a mile and we get a low capacity. We could move three or four, two or three times as many people on a bus on buses and we can on light rail, which would cost a lot less. So why are cities doing it? I think cities and transit agencies are doing it because uh, both the Canadian and, and US federal governments are tossing out money to them. And so they're building the high cost system for the prestige of having a high cost system, mm -hmm. not because it makes economic or transportation sense. Wow. But it makes environmental sense, doesn't it, uh, Randall, to do these um, light transit systems or these rail systems? Well, it doesn't really because they use a lot of concrete. They use a lot of steel. Building it uses a lot of petroleum. And so you generate uh, billions of tons of greenhouse gases building them. And yes, operating them might save you a little greenhouse gases, but Portland built a light rail line and they projected their annual savings in greenhouse gases and they, they estimated the cost of construction in terms of greenhouse gases. It would take 70 years of annual savings to, to make up for the construction cost. But light rail lines don't last forever. About every 30 years, they wear out. You have to replace everything. That means you have to have new concrete ties, new steel rails, uh, and you know, spend more new petroleum building it, which means you're never going to make up the cost on your annual savings. So no, they don't 
uh, they aren't energy efficient, wow. they aren't uh, greenhouse gas uh, friendly at all. And besides, light rail doesn't exist in a vacuum. It generally is served by transit buses that provide, that feed passengers into the light rail line. You stop, you know, you go to every major stop, you'll see transit buses coming in and stopping there and, and people having to change from the bus to the rail or vice versa. And uh, those buses generally use about three times as many, as much energy and uh, twice as, emit twice as much greenhouse gases per passenger mile as the average car. So the way to reduce greenhouse gas mm -hmm. emissions is to get people off of transit and into automobiles that are more and more fuel efficient and greenhouse gas friendly every single year. Wow. I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear this kind of information and these facts. It, it almost flips our perceptions of what the facts are. Uh, and, and so you're, you've really challenged us today to, to rethink um, all these transit solutions. They're not really solutions. So why, why are we going down these pathways that actually don't serve people well? Well, the transit agencies want bigger budgets, but the people who build the rail lines uh, are engineering, design, and, and contractors. They make enormous amounts of profits from building them. An mm -hmm. urban freeway costs, for a four-lane freeway, costs about 40 to $80 million a mile and can move thousands and thousands of people a day, hundreds of thousands of people a day. Uh, a light rail line is typically 100 to $300 million a mile and it's only two tracks, and it can only move a, a few tens of thousands of people a day. So it doesn't come near to doing the capacity of a freeway, uh, and yet it costs a lot more. So if you're a contractor, you can make more money building light rail than you can building freeways. And freeways are so simple, basically, of course. You, yeah. know, you grade a level path, and you put in some rebar and you put in some concrete, you know, the technology is really low. Whereas the, the building a rail line, you have to be a lot more precise because you don't want the tr trains to fall off the tracks. And mm -hmm. so it costs a lot more, a lot more engineering work that needs to be done. There's a lot more design work that needs to be done. So you have a whole bunch of companies that are involved in building rail that don't even get involved in building highways. So mm -hmm. they all lobby to see more rail construction be done. And they shield themselves behind uh, a bunch of dupes who call themselves environmentalists who think that, ooh, rail transit, it must be environmentally friendly, even though the data show that it isn't environmentally friendly anywhere unless uh, you don't have buses and all you have are rails and it's powered by nuclear power or something like that. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. really within the United States, we have rail transit in 40 cities. There's only one city where, uh, that uses less energy and, and emits less greenhouse gas emission in their transit system than in drivers. So uh, it doesn't make sense anywhere in the United States. And I'm sure wow. it doesn't make that, sense. That's, it, it, that's really quite a revelation then. So I think the other observation I'd make, and, and certainly at Frontier, we promote, um, as you do. Uh, principles for better public policy. And one of those would be the principle that any service should be delivered as close to the people as possible. So in that respect, 
local government, as you know, is is arguably the most important level of government, and um, and yet it's consistently undermined by um, in Canada the provincial levels of government or even the federal level of government, as you've alluded to before, that funds all kinds of initiatives that may or may not be grounded on what is called reality. So you have all kinds of initiatives that, quite frankly, um, are driving cities towards, quote, net zero plans. I know that the city of Regina and all, all of them are, are trying to adopt these plans that, again, double down on this so-called smart growth initiative, the 15-minute city. And and I think this is disastrous because a lot of people, citizens, aren't even aware of this. They, they're not even voting in on it and are frankly oblivious that it is going on. Is this consistent with what you're seeing all over the world? It is, and there's a tendency to blame this on the United Nations. The United Nations uh, met in uh, Rio de Janeiro once, and they wrote a document called Agenda 21. There's a lot of people who say that these urban yes. planners are coming from Agenda 21. And, and the funny thing is, I've read Agenda 21, and there isn't anything like this in there. Uh, it says things like, use urban transit where appropriate. Well, okay. How, how can anybody argue against using it where appropriate? It doesn't say force people out of their cars and onto urban transit. It says things like, where you have dense cities, make sure you have appropriate uh, uh, sewage and water facilities for residents of those cities. In other words, it was written for third world countries that don't necessarily have sewage and water facilities in, mm -hmm. in all their uh, uh, poor neighborhoods. Uh, it doesn't say force people to live in dense cities. All of that is coming from our local planners. They go to planning schools that basically are part of an architectural school. Architects are uh. arrogant enough to think that they can shape how people live by designing the way their buildings uh, look and that that'll change people's <laughs> behavior. And urban planners have adopted this mentality that we can manipulate how people live by shaping how cities work. They say, we shape our cities and then our cities shape us. Well, that's not true. What's happened is people have said, gee, I live in a really dense city where it's really hard to drive, so I'm gonna go out into the, out in the urban fringes and build a house and, or buy a house from a developer who's building a low density development and then I'll be able to drive because it's low densities and there won't be that much traffic. And I won't come downtown anymore because it's too dense downtown. Most of the jobs aren't downtown anymore. In the United States, outside of New York City, only 6% of urban jobs are located in downtowns. Uh, and it's a little higher in Canada, but not a lot. And so uh, people don't go downtown. And yet we have this idea that everything surround it, Everything is based on downtown, and so we have to design all of our transportation policies around downtown. We have to design all of our housing policies around downtown, mm -hmm. and they don't work. Cities don't work like that anymore, uh, and yet that's what the urban planners are doing. That's a great segue to, frankly, we've got to really rethink downtowns. There's that, I think that's very true historically from certainly my own experience and observations across the country with local government, there's almost an obsession around um, 
trying to preserve downtowns the way they function at the turn of the century. And it's really not helpful. So they have to be reimagined. Um, so if you were in charge for a day, what would you do uh, to reimagine our downtowns? Downtowns were built in human history for only about 50 years, from about 1880 to 1930. In 1880, we started developing the technology of using steel to build buildings. And then in 1891, they started having high-speed electric elevators. And so it made it possible to build buildings that you didn't have to walk every flight of steps to get up or wait for a very low-speed elevator to take you up. So we could build tall buildings for the first time in the 1880s and 1890s. Then by the 1920s, uh, late 1920s, most people had cars, jobs had moved out of downtowns. In, in, in 1910, most jobs were in factories and the factories were located downtowns because that's where the transportation was. By 1930, the factories had moved out of downtowns, the jobs had moved out of downtowns, uh, the transportation was outside of downtowns. And so the number of jobs, the importance of downtowns declined. So we had this five-year period. And yet, if you say to somebody just one word, if you say the word city in their head, they will imagine a place that has a downtown with big, tall skyscrapers surrounded by low-rise development. And they will imagine everybody living in these low-rise uh, suburban areas and then driving to downtown or taking transit to downtown to their jobs, even though 94% of the jobs aren't in the downtown. So we have this myth of a downtown that was based on this 50-year period. No downtowns were built before 1880. No downtowns really have been built without subsidies since 1930. And so the idea we need to save downtowns, that's like saying, we need to save the telegraph industry, or we need to save outhouses. Right. You know, it's not enough that everybody has a, a toilet in their house. We need to make sure that everybody is within a quarter mile of an outhouse. That's like saying we need to be, that's, and, and the urban planners are essentially saying that. They say we need to have everybody within a quarter mile of a light rail line. We need to have everybody be able to get to a high density downtown uh, without dealing with a lot of traffic. So they build light rail instead of freeways, no. and we end up with more congestion instead of less. Oh, and incidentally, the cities that have light rail, most of them haven't seen transit ridership increase. Most of them, transit ridership has gone down. Portland, for example, 10% of all Portlanders took transit to work in 1980. Since then, they've built five light rail lines, a commuter rail line, and two streetcar lines. And today, only 8% of commuters take transit to work. So it hasn't helped at all for as far as transportation goes. It's just enriched somebody's budgets, you know, the contractors and so on. So I think that would help explain. Uh, I think a lot of people would be shocked to realize that transit ridership in many communities is um, it continues to decrease decrease. In fact, I think it was just yesterday that um, the province of British Columbia was giving almost uh, $500 million towards um, TransLink, the larger transit service in Greater, Tor uh, Greater Vancouver, pardon me, uh, to be able to keep it um, alive. And it, it, it sounds like in, in Canada, in this country, we need to do some serious rethinking about transit 
and the shape of our communities um, uh, because a, a lot of transit systems would be uh, frankly struggling to have much ridership. Is that correct, Randall? Well, the pandemic has really done a number on transit because transit's core market was downtown. That's where transit went. If you had a job, if you had a home in the suburbs and you had a job in the suburbs, they probably weren't in the same suburb and getting from one to the other on transit would have taken hours. So most people who, and in fact, most people did live in the suburbs and have jobs in the suburbs, transit made no sense at all. So transit worked for downtown and guess what? The downtown workers who once were taking transit to work are the ones who are most likely to be working at home since the pandemic. And they are find themselves that they're more productive working at home. And so they're demanding to their employers that they wanna be allowed to still work at home as the pandemic tapers off. So uh, transit, it turns out, is hurt most by this. Uh, in a typical US city, working at home has tripled driving to work has declined by about 15 or 20% and taking transit to work has declined by 50 to 70%. So transit has been really hurt by this. And for some reason, every private business that has lost business due to the pandemic has had to suck it up. You know, they had to cut their costs. They had to uh, slow down their productivity. They had to do something in response to it. But for some reason, transit is supposed to be immune to this and we're supposed to say, ooh, they're going to have a, a, a transit death spiral if, if they're forced to reduce their services. We don't mm -hmm. have the numbers for Canadian transit, but in the United States, transit is carrying about 60% as many people as it did before the pandemic, but it's still offering 90% of the service and is spending 110% of the money doing that service. So it's spending more and getting less and yet, by talking about things like uh, uh, death spiral and fiscal cliffs and so on, they are getting more, getting local, state, and federal governments to provide them with more and more money to uh, keep on operating for fewer and fewer people. The same is happening in Canada, uh, and it makes no sense makes at all from an economic viewpoint or a transportation viewpoint. It only makes sense from the bureaucratic viewpoint that transit agencies or bureaucracies are trying to maximize their budgets. They're judged on how much they spend, not on what kind of transportation they actually provide. Exactly. So, Randall, as we turn to the, the close of our conversation, I did want to talk more about your vision then. We've critiqued extensively about how planning decisions are being made that make our lives, frankly, um, unaffordable and takes away choice, how do we flip that to um, a vision? What, what kind of vision are you an advocate for then? How should we be building better communities and frankly, better transportation systems? I'm an advocate for not having visions because once you have a vision, then you have pressure to try to impose that vision on people. Because whatever vision you have is gonna benefit some people and it's gonna harm other people. And so if, if you, have a vision, the people who benefit are gonna to lobby to make sure that vision gets forced onto the public. The people who harm who are harmed tend to be more diffuse and so they're not gonna be, they're gonna be less likely to lobby to uh, uh, have their side heard. So what 
instead of having visions, I think we need to go back to saying people should get to decide for themselves how they get around, how they live, where they work, and things like that. Let people decide for themselves and let developers and employers and transportation providers respond to the market, respond to what people want to do. So if people want to live in single family homes, the land should be available for developers to build single family homes for people to live in. If people want to drive to work, if they want to drive to shopping, then there should be a fee system set up so that they pay user fees that go to providing the roads for them to drive on. If people want to work in a place that's five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles away from where they live, then employers should be able to build employment centers uh, at whatever density makes sense for them uh, for people to work in. Um, the idea that uh, planners can envision the future to me is one of the most destructive ideas uh, we've seen in American and Canadian cities uh, in the last 50, 60 years. Wow. So if we look at this situation and it has huge impacts as we've outlined uh, on people's lives, particularly working people, poor people, um, it affects our costs and, and our choices and the, the kind of quality of life we can live. What kind of action can we take as citizens? Um, what should we be doing so people can look to the future uh, with, with confidence that they can build their, their lives? What, what action would you recommend we take? Well, the most important thing to do in British Columbia is get the, uh, the parliament to uh, eliminate, uh, abolish the planning laws that allowed the Greater Vancouver Authority to give, get all the, its power. Just abolish that authority. And there, those planning laws apply but to the this entire is a, This is across Canada, right? Well, see, I'm, I'm starting mm -hmm. with British Columbia because it has some of the strictest planning laws in the country. Uh, and then, you know, uh, mm. Ontario has laws that aren't as strict, but are there, and th those need to be repealed. I would say um, in uh, Manitoba, it probably doesn't. In Saskatchewan, they probably have very few planning laws like that. I haven't done a province by mm. province examination, but... Uh, I don't think there's any problems there. The main problem in Alberta is transportation. Both Edmonton and Calgary are focused on light rail, which as we've explained is really expensive and doesn't can't move as many people as buses. Uh, and to generate light rail ridership, I suspect that they're trying to get high density development along the light rail lines, which isn't the way people want to live. People don't move to Alberta so they can live in a mid-rise or high-rise housing project. Uh, so Alberta, and particularly Calgary and Edmonton, need to get away from this point of view uh, and uh, uh, let people live the way they want to live. So it's different by province, but uh, I don't think the, the federal government in Canada has as much of a role, although it did fund the Ottawa light rail and some other light rail lines, which was a big mistake. Uh, it needs to get out of that and let the provinces uh, uh, govern the cities and let the, and the provinces in turn should let the cities decide what they want to be 
and not try to impose a vision on those cities. Well, well said. Uh, Randall O'Toole, president of the Thoreau Institute, economist and award-winning analyst. We're so glad that you could join us today and challenge us about our thinking around cities as well as transportation. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.